0: This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 184, Rewirement and Risks to Retiring in 2021 with Jamie Hopkins. Have you ever seen the show American Ninja Warrior? That's right. That's the show where these poor souls put themselves through grueling obstacles. And they every time one of them gets through the entire course, they just add more obstacles. Uh, so it just gets longer and longer and more bloated as it goes. And these incredible athletes are pushing themselves to the limit. And they're just being faced with more and more risk. In fact, I think as of my last review of the show, there were 18 I think 18 different obstacles, two of them were underwater. One's probably facing off with a real live dragon in outer space. You know what I mean? This is just an incredible feat of human capacity, this show. Uh, But we're not that far uh, removed from the show when it comes to retirement. That's right. According to my guest today, there are over 25 different risks or obstacles you have to face like an American Ninja Warrior in your retirement For example, you have to plan a finite amount of money to last over an uncertain amount of time. We don't know how long we're going to live in our retirement, but we have a finite amount of cash. How do we solve that problem? It seems impossible. It's almost like fighting a dragon in outer space, let's say. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest today, Jamie Hopkins Esquire. Now he's got more letters than I care to even read after his name here, but let's just say he is one smart guy. He is the managing director of Carson Coaching and the director of retirement research for Carson Group. He's a finance professor of practice at Creighton University's Heider College of Business. And he's the author of the book, Rewirement, Rewiring the Way We Think About Retirement Planning. Jamie helped co-create the retirement income certified professional designation at the American College of Financial Services. And he was named as a top 40 young attorney by the American Bar Association and a top 40 financial service professional under the age of 40 by Investment News. In 2020, his work on retirement planning and the recent SECURE Act won an award from wealthmanagement.com for being the best thought leadership advisor education article in the industry. You can contact him at jamiehopkins.com or follow Jamie on Twitter at Retirement Risks. So guys, you're going to love the conversation. I think it covers a lot of ground and it has a very hopeful end. So stay to the end and we'll talk more about what we can do with all these risks. So you can win the American Retirement Ninja Challenge. Take it away, Jamie. Jamie, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad you're on, man. First, before we get to all about you, I have to thank you publicly because I believe the last time you and I were talking... I had my hat in my hand, metaphorically speaking, uh, and you had the keys to my my professional designation as a certified financial planner, and because uh, you were the the gatekeeper, so to speak, for the last course in my certified financial planner professional designation coursework before taking my test. So, uh, I guess. You know, whatever you did to convince the higher ups that I was, you know, worth going through the process and getting the CFP marks, I want to thank you, man. So <laughs> appreciate it.
1: Yeah. We, we worked through that financial plan together, right? That was the last piece. So, yeah, you know, it, it, right. It, it's right. So it's a really funny thing about that and how my mind works. I can still remember how I saved the file, right? So I don't remember the plan, but I do know how I saved the file with your name in it. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, 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 it's so something. funny. The thing the things the mind remembers well so tell me speaking of remembers take but take us back to little Jamie's you know childhood um, what was money like for you' you're, you're an accomplished attorney and professor of finance at a at the American College you have more letters after your name than you have in your name so that's quite an accomplishment uh, so thank you for what you're doing in the financial space across the country but what was it like with little Jamie run around? How did you earn your first couple of bucks as a kid?
1: Yeah, it's a great story. So, I mean, honestly, my first job was uh, with my mom's company at that point. Um, And my first experience, though, is, is kind of influential for the rest of my life. So my dad passed away when I was eight years old, and I only recently kind of started telling this story around money, but... Um, neither one of my parents graduated from college my dad did construction roofing gutters spacious siding all stuff up high on the ladder and uh they ran a small business with my mom and he passed away when i was eight and uh, fell off uh, a job site and was gone mm-hmm. and so uh, my first real job was you know probably some bookkeeping stuff with my mom's company and but that loss. You know, obviously put us in a tough spot money wise and not having, you know, college degrees and running your own business. And so I have, you know, probably more early trauma memories around money um, than some people. But honestly, the longer I've been in this profession, the more people I realize have trauma memories from early times around money and how influential that is. And so that's just been a big driver for me on, you know, financial security for Americans and for people like my mom. And families having life insurance and financial plans and knowing how they're going to get by. Um, So it's kind of core to who I am. And that took me, as you mentioned, to American college. I spent about seven years there um, and, you know, teaching and building courses and I'm still an academic. I'm actually not uh, at the college anymore as a full professor. I've got a professorship at Creighton University's Heider College of Business and, at Carson group now too, running the de- retirement division. So lots of fun things out there, but that was that first, uh, experience with money. It's
0: a big, big story. Thank you very much for sharing that. And, uh, as both of us have lost parents, uh, young in life, I'd say we're still in the, the younger side of uh, the coin, so to speak in life. It's, it's never, it, it's, it, there's, it's never late enough. I would say, you know, hope, hopefully all those listening get as many years with your parents in as possible uh, but uh, you're right. The impact of a of a parent passing on emotionally, that's one side of it, and that's a whole other podcast for sure. But Jamie, you mentioned some of the financial impacts as well. And then you've gone on to write a book, uh, the book Rewirement, uh, which was a great book. I read it uh, about a year or two ago, I guess. I can't remember now. It was about a year ago, I guess, uh, when I read it. You bring up quite a few of the risks associated with the unknown future known as retirement. And I'd like for you to kind of just tell us a bit about, broadly speaking, what you covered in the book. And then I'd like to turn our attention next, so I don't forget, toward what risks you're seeing as we go through 2021, 22, and beyond.
1: Yeah, so it's funny because, you know, retirement risks, uh, I I originally wrote a book, I think, on 18 retirement risks for four. And I think by the time I wrote rewirement, I was up to 24 retirement risks, and that still didn't include worldwide pandemic, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, true. (laughs) It it, it continued to evolve. Um, You know, when I look at retirement planning and income planning and retirement, there are some really big risks that just almost everyone has to think about and deal with uh, that are kind of core to retirement. I mean, one of them being longevity. And so longevity is is so important when you start talking about retirement because you retire at 65. And I use the generic example here, 65. Think about this, right? You are literally could have a 30, 35, 40 year retirement. That means that your planning horizon is longer, right? Than somebody who is being born today to plan for college, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, you think about that and you're like, wow, like, and, and that is honestly, the single hardest thing about retirement is that we have to plan for a certain amount of money over an uncertain period of time. If I knew your retirement was going to be 15 years, three months and two days long, we could come up with a plan, but I don't know if it's going to be a day, you know, 10,000 days, 30,000 days. And so that really challenges any type of planning with an unknown time horizon. Uh you know, obviously you can get into further things, you know like you know, inflation risk is a big one that's a great tie to today um, because it's a good conversation. Public policy risk uh, is, I think is uh, you know, something I've covered in a book and it's one of those things we can't control very well. So it's a true risk. We can do some things to plan for it. Um, but I can't really control it, right? Laws change, administrations change. I can go vote, but honestly, a, I can't control <laughs> all of it right. with a single vote. Um, and so those are true risks. There are things um, I actually, uh, you know, longevity is an interesting one. Most people talk about it as a risk. Um, I still use that terminology because people uh, associate it with a risk. I, fundamentally, I realize it's not a risk. Um, it's a risk exacerbator, um, it makes all these other risks worse, but actually longevity is a great thing. I want to live as long as possible, right? So yeah. in and of itself it's not a risk, but it increases healthcare risk and inflation risk and, you know, running out of, you know, money, right. The, the likelihood you outlive your own portfolio, it increases other risks. So it is, a uh, you know, something we need to deal with, but in and of itself is actually a good thing. <laughs>
0: Well, that's true. Birthday candles, I'll take as many as I can, but you're exactly right. It exposes us or exacerbates us to every other risk out there. You brought up some that I'd never heard of before. Tell me what you meant by uh, unexpected financial responsibility. That, I don't know if you recall, but um, was one of the risks you mentioned in your book. What did you mean by that? What sort of unexpected financial responsibilities come up in retirement?
1: Yeah. And and that one, I often focus on the family side. That's the clearest one you can drive to. And today we we, we have people right around retirement that are feeling it on both sides. So at at one point, you know, I say, if you go back to the 90s, it was more likely that you would get this parent coming back who you'd provide some informal long-term caregiving for. And that became this unexpected financial burden, even though like culturally it's, it might felt like the right thing to do to provide the care, but you weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to have an additional five to $8,000 out of pocket, or I have to leave the workforce, um, which was happening to a lot of women that were becoming these caregivers. It became a really big burden there financially on the next generation. Now, today, we actually have both sides. So we have people in their 50s and 60s that are now taking care of parents who need long-term care and having kids graduate college or in their 30s losing jobs perhaps or just – you know, not wanting to buy a house and they're coming back in and they're providing some support there. So there are, you know, and then all of a sudden, right, you're strapped on both sides. You thought I'm going to send my kids to college. You're going to go get a job. And they're going to leave. And then they move back in at home. Then you thought, well, at least my parents, right, they're living independently in Florida. One of them has a fall or has a stroke and they come back and all of a sudden you're providing care on both sides. Now that could delay your own retirement. It could deplete funds that you were going to use. So that's a big one. And, uh, You know, I think culturally, that's okay. It's okay to actually help on both of those. But what does that do for our own future too?
0: You know, I'm thinking even more about what you're saying. And as we live longer and our parents live longer and our children also are taking longer to leave the nest because they're expecting maybe even to, to get a later start in life. You're right. It's kind of that sandwiching. Uh, between you, between these other two generations that need to rely on you, that's a lot of pressure for the income earner in the household, coupled with your own longevity. I mean, you described some numbers earlier. I was thinking, I was like, wow, it's possible that I could actually be retired for longer than I work. I mean, my career Mm -hmm. could be shorter than my retirement. That's unbelievable. Can you imagine going 40 years without a paycheck uh, that that believe that just blows my mind. So we will get to some solutions that you've uh, offered and recommend, and strategies that you mention in your articles and your books. But before we do that, I'd love for you to share a bit about some of what you portend or you uh, anticipate for the coming year and years as you look into your crystal ball, Jamie. What do you see? What's happening in the retirement space uh, as we enter this brave new world?
1: Yeah, so um, let me – tie. I'll, I'll start with something that ties back to some of that, and it's the conversations about lifetime income and pensions, and that's going to become a more important conversation in the next five years than it's been for the last five years. And the reason is, you know, we're you know, we're entering this time period where soon our retirees will start retiring without most of them relying on pensions. There's still a lot to do today, right around the 65 to 70. But that break starts to occur because in the 90s and 80s, pensions started already in the early 90s to fade away. And you know, that's been the core of our retirement system is pensions and social security. And that's creating that paycheck that we mentioned about in retirement when we don't earn it anymore. And we're going to put this onus, which has been culturally and societally a movement, which is putting the onus on retirement and retirement income and savings on the individual, right? We've shifted from pensions and government to individual responsibility here. The problem with that is it's kind of a giant you know, societal experiment. We don't know if it actually works yet. <laughs> uh, we haven't seen it. And all of a sudden, you know, that gets a little worrisome. So there are a lot of economists out there that said, you know what, this is going to fail. The 401k being the system without annuities, without lifetime income, with potential cuts to Social Security, is going to get really ugly. And where it's going to get ugly is not that People won't be able to meet some basics, but their standard of living will cut back substantially. That they'll stop spending. Um, people are actually better than we give them credit for for adjusting to, you know, uh, pullbacks in income. They cut their lifestyle back. We do. We're we're better at that than we get credit for. Um, but that doesn't mean we created a good life for people. We just have a bunch of people that can't spend, can't do things they want, aren't traveling. You know. Um, One of my friends, Dr. Barry Sachs, always said, you know, people start eating cat food and dog food in retirement, right? And that's not really what we want. And, you know, that's true. That's what Americans do today. When they run out of money, they just cut back tremendously. And then the downside of all of that is what happens. We become very reliant on Medicare, on Medicaid. We become reliant on, you know, other systems that are not necessarily the most efficient to, you know – kind of get people through. And so creating better financial literacy and financial independence helps reduce the reliance on government-funded programs. So there's this always, like, mix of how far do we go one way or the other, and I think we probably swung too far one way. This year will be really interesting. We're going to get a really, really bad Social Security trust fund report this summer, okay? And And I've been trying to talk about this ahead of time, because it's going to feel scary it's not a surprise what happened in 2020 we had 20 million americans close out the end of the year without jobs which means they're not paying social security taxes which means the system's not being funded we lost three or four years in 2009 for the funding we might lose four years again due to 2020 and that report comes out this summer so we're going to see a report saying hey this fund is going to run out of money in 2035 go down to maybe 2030, 2031, and that's going to feel scary because now it's within a decade. Um, And so I'm trying to get ahead of that, but that's a big deal, and it's going to start to influence policy and decisions and taxes and planning soon. I think it's been a little muted the last five years. People still said, hey, it's okay. 2035 is a while away. Well, five years later, and then we lose five years, it's a lot
0: closer. Right. What a difference one year makes when you lose five um, incredible. what 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 other I mean, yes, you're right. Uh, and in fact, that's part of what I guess is is prompting the Boston College Center for Retirement Research to mention that basically half of all Americans won't be able to keep their current standard of living in retirement. I, I assume a part of their assumptions are this underfunded social security system. What happens? I mean, what ha- so, paint the picture of 2030 or, or 2031, are we going to just not have social security? Is it going to just be a m- muted number? Are we just not going to get a COLA? Or, or just describe what do you see happening once we truly run out of uh, the, the the funds?
1: Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll take a half step back and we'll get there. The first part is just to express how important social security is for retirement in this country. It is actually lost on a lot of people because it's been around basically everyone who's alive today, <laughs> right, that was in a workforce has paid into Social Security. They've been a part of it. They've experienced it. And it covers almost everyone. It's like 96% of the workforce now pays into Social Security. It's everyone. It's the probably the single most efficient financial instrument that's ever been built. For all the problems with it, it is incredibly efficient. It runs with less than a 1% overhead cost. Think about a company that could run with less than 1% overhead costs. They don't exist, which means it beats out all the comparable products that are out there in the annuity world. It always does. Every analysis is ever done says, hey, it's better. It doesn't have this building in overhead. When you look at Americans, right, you mentioned that half number, right? More than half of Americans, right, it's almost two-thirds, it's a little over 60%, more than half of their income comes from Social Security in retirement. For one third of Americans, it is over 90% of their income comes from wow. Social Security. So, say, hey, Social Security could go away. That's true if you're okay with more than half the country being completely destitute in retirement, not being able to meet their rent, their food, their medical. Well, what would that do? That would actually collapse the economy. <laughs> so, like, we actually don't have a system that's set up for Social Security to go away. Could you rename it? Could you change it? Absolutely. We're on a trajectory, and essentially we're there now, but we're on a trajectory where Social Security, with the current funding level, with the number of people we have in the workforce, with the number of retirees we're going to have, the current system won't keep it funded. In essence, it's a math problem, though. We take in money, we pay out money. It's fairly simple on that side. We can do one of two things. We can increase the money coming in, or we can decrease the money going out. That's it. Um, There's not a whole lot else to it. It's already the most efficient system in existence, right? There's no research and development. There's no marketing and sales, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a very simple system that provides lifetime income to people based on kind of, you know, having almost everyone as part of it. So it's very efficient. Um, Where, what happens when the funds run out is by law we essentially cut back to the amount of money that's coming in based off payroll taxes. So About 78% of promised benefits to 75% would be able to be paid based off what would be coming in under the current system for the foreseeable future, next 60 to 80 years. So um, can we meet three quarters of the payments? Yes. That's by law what happens if we get to that point where we have less money coming in than going out and the funds are depleted. So what's ahead of us right now is you know, we've got President Biden just came in office on the 20th of January. We've got part of his tax proposal when he ran for office was fixed Social Security funding. He ran on a proposal that would add Social Security tax, you know, taxes back on at $400,000 and over. So, between taxable wage base, which is right around $143 ish in 2021, and $400,000 of income, you wouldn't pay anything into Social Security. Once you get $401,000, right, you would start paying Social Security taxes again. You wouldn't accumulate NORA benefits, but essentially it's funding the system. Um, his, his, all of the plans that have been floated that he's talked about, some people have done analysis, that's the single biggest tax of all the policies talked about so when people say hey there's a tax increase there would be but it, the the provision is funding Social Security if you're going to get very honest about it but also remember Social Security is our single biggest taxes that exists today right from a revenue pers- perspective it is our single biggest funding uh, program in existence it's not military a lot of people always say well you know how much sure you spend on military military is not even close to what we spend on Social Security and
0: Medicare mm-hmm.
1: those are our Largest two government programs in existence. Fascinating. So, a lot of pieces, but that is where we are right now.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, it's it it's so it's an anathema to me that it's the most efficient system and yet it's about to go broke. I don't get that. But um, you're exactly right. Um, you're exactly right. It's it undeniably is a fundamental uh, need back to Parkinson's law, you know, a, a luxury that's once enjoyed becomes a necessity. Uh, and thankfully we don't have destitute people on the streets of this country. It's a, it's something I think we can all be proud of as, a, as, uh, Americans. Uh, and yet we fundamentally have to do something before the car hits the tree in nine, 10 years now. Yeah. So what else do you see coming? Um, as, as you look into the the near future, Jamie, with all the changes in regulations and more.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a big one, and you, you kind of brought up also why. Well, why is because it hasn't been updated since 1980. So if I didn't update my software on my computer mm. since 1980, it also yeah.
0: wouldn't work very well. That's a good or, point. We're living um, longer. Yeah, that's a good – yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes great sense. It has not been updated since since 1980. That's a surprise.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, and another big thing, and tied to more of a macro issue, is actually the return assumptions inside of it – um, you know, going back to early 1980s, we had 16, 17 percent, uh, you know, CD and interest rates, and this has been a long-term thing coming, right? But interest rates have been coming down worldwide for 40 years. Um, it's not last year, it's not this year, and we're essentially sitting at most developed countries at as close to zero as we can get from any real rates. And it's not just here; it's you know, Germany, it's Japan. Um, China is a little bit higher. Um, they're, they're paying a little bit higher rates, um, but the, most of the developed com- t- countries have got there. That puts pressure on a lot of things. So it's putting pressure on retirees, on how they invest, on how they save. We're seeing some data that's suggesting it's actually putting more retirees into higher equity positions, whether good or bad, but it's changing behavior as we're sitting with very low rates. Um, the Fed has come out and said, hey, look, long term, we want to get to 2% inflation. Well, remember, the last 100 years were about 3.3, and mm-hmm. the Fed is saying we want to get back to two long-term. Fed doesn't see us going back to old inflation rates, much lower, much lower interest rates projected out in the future. So that's going to drive a lot of like macroeconomic assumptions um, on funding of programs, returns people can get. So that's big. Uh, I think that this year is going to be mostly driven around uh, what we're going to see from uh, you know, administrative rulemaking, executive orders, um, and we'll also see some type of tax proposal here at some point this year. Um, what gets done, I don't know yet. You know, is in the that's the public policy risk. There's a lot of things Biden ran on. There's some talks about really modifying the 401k system, moving away from kind of this salary deferral to reduce your adjusted gross income and moving to a credit-based system. Well, that's a really interesting thing um, and, and could get some attention and maybe move forward, but it would change a lot of the planning. So I, I know some of the listeners, right, your higher income, you've got real estate, you've got other investments, and all of a sudden it might be, well, we want to set up 401ks or we want to leverage 401ks in different ways using more after-tax money, using more Roth money. And there's been conversations about actually moving long-term capital gains rates up to 39.6%, going to, you know, and there was a time when long-term capital gains rates were higher. Um, I I think that's an unpopular (laughs) stance today, but it's for people with a million plus of income. So again, higher net worth people seeing higher capital gains rates. And then what savings and investing behavior does that change is a really interesting conversation. But these are things that Biden ran on during his uh, you know, uh, presidential campaign. I do think this is an important—I I presented earlier before we shot this, about 800 financial advisors were on a, a presentation I did. And I made the comment that Biden, at least the Biden that ran for office, was a moderate candidate when it comes to economics. All right? Janet Yellen, who is bringing a part of his team, is one of the most respected economists out there, right? led in the feds coming on the team um moderate now people say well didn't biden also say he's going to be the most progressive president ever yes the last election was more about social issues and ec- economic if you actually take the biden tax plan that was presented throughout his campaign would have been a tax cut compared to 2017 tax laws so you know it's kind of in between where we were four years ago and where we are today. To me, that's fairly moderate. Total policies, you can have a different conversation. But from an economic standpoint, um, tax policy, fairly moderate um, in the grand scheme of things.
0: So policy risk is something that you hear a lot about. And especially after COVID-19, um, which we you know, have, as of this recording, are still in the midst of a rollout of the vaccine and more, inflation is a conversation a lot of my clients are having. Do you see inflation running amok in the years to come?
1: Uh, I, I I do not see inflation running amok in years to come. Um, will we see higher inflation? Probably. I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, it's actually the goal. So when people are like, oh, is inflation going to increase? Well, the Fed's goal is to get inflation higher. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a stated goal. Now, they have stated that jobs are first, inflation second. They're focused on that, too. Um, you can argue right, you know, going into January, I think we saw core inflation maybe rise above two. Um, still CPI based inflation numbers mostly below 2%. And, you know, certain, and inflation is a funny thing because it's not, it, it all depends on what metric you want to look at inflation through, right. what lens. Yeah. Yeah. CPI, which tracks inflation. Uh, spending of the elderly has for about a decade been higher than the cpiw which is the worker-based one why because they're spending more money on healthcare. college education inflation was much much higher so when you think about parents their inflation costs actually were going up higher than other things now right we're recording this on iphones and computers and tvs well all that stuff is cheaper than it was a decade ago it's had deflation Honestly, this year twenty twenty, what we see with huge deflation, oil, gas. I mean, just plummeted in prices. I mean, literally at one point, right? We were down sixty something percent and over a year. Um, well, that means spending. If I'm traveling or buying oil or gas, that changed my spending. But um, the thing about inflation is, inflation is not that meaningful year to year in developed countries. Okay, uh, th- that's the first part. If you're working, you don't even worry about it that much because, generally speaking, wages adjust for inflation. Where inflation becomes really detrimental is not 2021 to 2022. It's 2021 to 2052. Because even if it's 1% or 2% over 30 years, it could still double the cost of goods. That's where mm-hmm. it starts to matter. So when you start thinking on like fixed income and then things double, that's where it becomes scary. Um, I do say sometimes too. Thirty-two thousand percent. You might have even heard this in one of the classes. I, I use this for a while. Thirty-two thousand percent. Do you know what that number relates to from inflation? No. Tell us all about it. Yeah. It, it was the highest single year of inflation in Brazil. <laughs> so in nineteen ninety. They had 32,000% inflation in one year. And I used to joke, right, you'd want to pay for dinner before you eat, not after.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember this now. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, And then you look at like Weimar, Germany, where where folks would, uh, you'd be carrying a wheelbarrow full of money, and folks would uh, steal your wheelbarrow and leave the money. Yeah, that's kind of the Uh, idea there.
1: Yeah, and, and and so I think this. Uh, but what is important about that? It's not to argue that the United States is going to have that type of inflation, right? We're right. We're, right. If that, and I would tell people, could that happen here? Of course, it could happen here. But that means like the entire economy collapses. And honestly, inflation is the least of your worries at that point because right. it means yeah. nobody's employed, right? You're all unemployed. The inflation numbers, you all yes. you have you know basically chaos in society. <laughs> so yeah, that's, we right. Got that's right.
0: That's right. That's um, right. Well, and. and- and uh, just to maybe hopefully help folks find some hope at the end of this episode, one, it's a reminder too that wealth is not just what's in your wallet. It's the assets that all around us uh, provide the productivity of the country. Uh, those airplanes down at O'Hare Airport or your nearby your airport, they're still going to be a valuable tool no matter what your dollar is worth. And so capital is at least a part of the definition of wealth, and that doesn't just they're not going to mothball the airplanes just because, you know, someone raised interest rates yesterday Um, and, and vice versa, you know, things like tractors, uh, excavators, high, sky high, you know, high, high rises and more it's we have a capital design society and that is going to be true no matter what the, the fed does or whatever. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm not, I'm not losing much sleep over inflation. Um, Jamie, anything else on that before we share with folks, some, Strategies. Uh, what you would recommend as the as the uh, retirement expert?
1: I, I love that point you just made. Look, I'm I'm a, I, I'm actually a fairly uh, you might not notice it from this, but I'm a I'm a fairly like negative or skeptical person on most things. Um, I don't know neg- skeptical, right? Negative maybe not the case, but skeptical on most things. However, I'm still very very bullish on the long term U.S. economy. Um, You know, we have incredibly well-educated smart workers with a system of still very strong infrastructure, both technology, IP, law, comparatively to most of the world. I will also argue that we still have the best legal system in the world. A bunch of faults. I I think we, you know, that, that gets to other stuff. There's a bunch of issues. But to a large extent, from a business standpoint, we have, if not the best, one of the top best, you know, systems for encouraging business from a legal standpoint, because we have fairly consistent outcomes. We don't have, you know, people might say, hey, we've got corruption. We don't have the level of corruption that a lot of countries do when it has comes to business, right? Um, and, you, you know, you mentioned Illinois. Yes, we've got people thrown in jail in Illinois for corruption charges, but it's still, in comparison to the history of the world, we have a very good system on the legal side, which gives us a lot of certainty to be able to actually create a business and not worry That literally, I created something valuable, so somebody's gonna come take it tomorrow from me. Um, And and that's unique in the history of the world. It's not a lot of countries that have had that security. And that, you know, um, there is actually an old book that talked about that. I think Japan did a review of the US and said that that's one of the strongest things Mm -hmm. about our system. That most of the other world didn't experience, so we've got very good protections there. So that makes me very bullish on long-term outcome of our economy. Uh, very strong. if uh, we can hop into some strategies or things I say to consider if we want to go there? And
0: you know, that's that's yeah, a sure. good place. Yeah, I always, uh, I'm, I'm encouraged too that there are enough people going to jail here in Illinois that should be because that's proof the system works, right? Um, yeah. It's the folks that don't go to jail that need, uh, uh, I guess. But you're exactly right. Um, the, the, the capacity for the contract in Western civilization, America in particular, I suppose, but the contract law is really what uh, I suppose is one of the backings of our optimism that you and I share, it sounds like. So Jamie, speaking of contracts, you know, one of the specialties that we focus on through our firm at Lake Growth is high cash value, whole life insurance as a insurance contract to building wealth outside of um, 401ks, IRAs, that sort of thing. And annuities, uh, which are insurance contracts as well. Uh, so annuities provide that longevity risk solution. Would you describe in your own mind, what are some strategies that folks that may or may not be familiar with either of those two things I just said, and any other creative, not so average financial strategies that you've come across?
1: Yeah, well, we, get, we can stick to those two and tie back to the risks that we talked about here today. So, I mean, a couple things there, right? Um, or I guess the, the hedges on this um, around myself. I don't sell products, right? Um, so it's always good for people to know that ahead of time. Uh, <laughs> so I'm mm-hmm. not here to sell you a product or a strategy, but give you different ways to think about it, perhaps. Um, when I was hired at my firm, um, somebody actually wrote to our president, Aaron Shabin and said, oh, you're hiring that annuity guy. Um, I, I, I'm actually very product agnostic. I look at strategies and research, and I say, hey, what fits different needs? And it's just funny that somebody said that, because I've also had people say, well, that guy, you know, he helps RIAs and never really do annuities, and so it's funny hearing both. But um <laughs> So, when we talk about one longevity, we talk about social security, we talk about pensions, uh, lifetime income, annuities are built to create income, right? That's the purpose. If you took a finance class, you probably only learned about the basic annuity. Put this in, this payout rate pays your life, you know, some calculator that you. Tapped into. Um, and that was your experience with annuities. Well, they can get much more complex than that, but at the core, uh, annuities are ways to create um, some systematic flow of income from an insurance product. I mean, that's at their core why they were created. And when you think about longevity, there's only a couple ways to create lifetime income, annuities being one of them. So if that's one of your goals that you're worried about how long you're going to live, you want some secure level of paychecks coming in. Um, look at annuities, they can fill into that role. Now, you, annuities can be used in a lot of different ways. I've talked about this uh, particular strategy a lot, is thinking about, right, your fixed income. So that's your bonds, your CDs, those, those things we've talked about already, low interest rates. Um, consider fixed income as a total asset class and include certain types of annuities in there. So sometimes you might say, hey, I want this X amount of return from this dollar without downside risk in the market. And can I get a better return using a fixed index annuity product for that time period than I can getting using a bond ladder today? And the, the answer a lot of times is yes, right? And it's totally, I don't care what you call the product. It's product agnostic. It's just what is my return for the same level of risk? Then um, there's great research. Robert, Roger Ibbotson's uh, probably been the leader in that particular example of replacing bonds with or CDs with an annuity for that level of risk and return. So I often tell advisors to consider that. So then you mentioned also life insurance, life insurance is, you know, I I think at its core, right. What's the purpose of life insurance? It's essentially to ensure the loss of income at some point. However, life insurance has a second feature, at least whole life, permanent life can have right. A, a tax advantage in essence, uh, You know, savings component to it or investing component, um, depending on the type of policy, and that can be used strategically. It's a good, you know, it's a strong value proposition that doesn't isn't there with every other type of uh, product strategy. Um, there has been nice research kind of in multiple different areas on life insurances. One, actually paying life insurance can be viewed as a, <laughs> as a way to create forced or automatic savings, which from a behavioral standpoint has some benefits like buying a house. Um, you can have the death benefit, which is great, protecting family, going back to the story about losing my father at a young age. And then, you know, you can also create uh, some tax diversification. That's probably where we get to uh, when thinking about where public policy risk is today, having after-tax money, having long-term capital-style money, having pre-tax salary deferred money, having money in a Roth account, having money in an annuity that might be deferred, or life insurance policy. So, you know, could laws change and change annuity taxation? Sure. Could it not change, though, and leave life insurance alone? Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Could Roth change? Sure. Could, you know, the 401k tax deferred rules change? Yes. So what we mean by tax diversification is I don't know where any of this public policy is going. Um, We can't predict that. And so what we do is we diversify like we would anywhere else. And if I have money in different buckets, different investments, different strategies, I am reducing the risk that a single public policy change would you know, change the tax implications across the board for me. So most people, I just ask them this though. Um, Then there's a book, you might have it. I've got it somewhere behind me too, Power of Zero. Oh yeah. back there Mm -hmm. somewhere on the right? Um, (laughs) uh, It's in here somewhere. I don't know where it is. But um, you know, an argument there is, do you think tax rates are going up? If you believe tax rates are going up, Don't have your money in taxable stuff. Get it away from taxable things, right? Move it to life insurance. Move it to Roth. Move it to after tax. Get it away from rising tax rates. So if you believe that, then act upon your beliefs. If you think your tax rates are going down in the future, fine, then act in accordance with that. But in the same level, do you know which way they're going? Most people would say, well, I don't really know. I'm I'm taking educated, right, guess. Well, then let's diversify that risk. Have a little bit of money. It's okay if tax rates go down. Have a little bit of money. It's okay if tax rates go up. And that's tax diversification at its core. Um, I I think most people today believe that tax rates are going up. So, um, However, I would probably tell you if we went back to 2010 and I asked people, do you think tax rates will go up between now and 2020? Everyone would have said, of course, tax rates are going up. And actually, tax rates went down from 2010 to 2020.
0: <laughs> so, the the um, mystery of policy. Of... <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. You're right. Uh, uh, what's the old quote? Um, uh, prediction is very difficult, especially when it involves the future, something like that. Yep. Uh, so Jamie, this is fantastic. I know you've got to go. Uh, thank you for your time today. This is awesome. Uh, it does feel like we're peering into the future when we talk with you. So thank you so much for all you do Um, Not just for um, today in our audience, but for the advisors around the country and the people that you're serving, Uh, literally helping folks meet their financial goals and objectives without having to sit behind a desk and do advisory work. You are advising in many ways. Um, Speaking of, we can find you at, let's see, jamiehopkins.com. Jamie, that's J-A-M-I-E, hopkins.com. Or you guys can follow Jamie at Retirement Risks on Twitter. Uh, And we both agreed that that's a great handle on Twitter worth probably a couple, at least a couple bucks, you know, if you ever decide to sell the handle, I guess. So uh, Jamie, thank you. Any final words of wisdom for our audience today?
1: Uh, The the final word of wisdom is just, you know, be proactive on your planning, right? Nobody's going to take care of your financial planning for you. You need to so be proactive, get a plan in place. And that's what it starts with. What do you want to accomplish
0: and engage in the planning? Love it. Jamie, thanks for all you do. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right. Thanks for being on the show. Boy, we just had a ton of fun. It was a great privilege to get to chat with Jamie. And as always, he brought it. He brought it. You could tell. I won't spend too much time wrapping up here, but I did want to touch on a few key pieces. You know, he brought, he brought up how we've moved from putting the burden of income in retirement from pensions Uh, To the 401k, where now it's you and me as the sole provider of our unsecure future. He referred to the 401k as a giant societal experiment, and his words were quote We don't know if it actually works yet." Referring to the 401k. Now, guys, do you want to be a part of an experiment in your life with your golden years? You don't get to redo retirement if it doesn't work out that well. The other thing I thought, and just caught my attention was he said, don't worry about inflation. He's actually very bullish on the long-term prospects of the U.S. economy. We have one of the best legal systems in the world, specifically around intellectual property law, and we're very consistent in our outcomes and very strong as a business culture that we can continue to build on into the future. While, you know, he says, and I agree, our government is not perfect, uh, we don't have a lot of corruption like other countries might have and contract law is what backs that optimism in this country. So I believe that there's some reason for hope. And finally, he mentions that annuities of all things in the financial universe are built and designed specifically to create income. And under that basic contract law, it builds on the strength of Western civilization. Now, guys, I don't care what you call a product, annuity or whatever else. I just care what it does. If it does what I want it to do, call it Whatever you want. So that was some of my takeaways. What were your takeaways? I'd love to know. Meet me on our Not Your Average financial community and tell me all about it. Tell me what you thought of this episode. And maybe you can even meet Jamie and other people who are contributing to our show. You can go to notyouraverage.mn.co. That's notyouraverage.mn.co. Become a regular contributor. Join the revolution. Uh, don't just passively listen to our show. We're ready to make it yours. So guys, thank you for joining me and Jamie and all the rest of us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think and live differently with your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting.